Hello, thank you for listening to an episode of our Valiant Voices conversation series. I am Cheryl Thomas, the founder and executive director of Global Rights for Women, a nonprofit located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, working to end gender-based violence around the world. This episode was recorded on a Zoom webinar. If you would like to attend the next one live, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org front slash Valiant Voices to sign up. Thank you and enjoy listening to our series. We are going to start today's conversation series, Valiant Voices with a land acknowledgement. We gratefully acknowledge the indigenous people of the lands we are on today. Even though we're meeting in a virtual space, it's important for us to recognize that we have and continue to benefit from the occupation of this land since even before the United States was formed as a nation. Global Rights for Women, our organization, is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with staff throughout Minnesota, and acknowledges that we are on Dakota and Anishinaabe land. We recognize the historic discrimination and violence that have been inflicted on indigenous people globally. Additionally, we understand the treatment of indigenous women as a byproduct of colonialism, racism, and misogyny that has perpetuated the continual, continued sexual abuse, disappearance, and murder of indigenous women. So please join us now in a moment of reflection to acknowledge the harm of the past and present, to consider how you might join the effort to dismantle the continued oppression of indigenous communities and restore justice. And also, since people are joining here from around the world, at this time, if you'd like to put into the chat the land that you are acknowledging, we would appreciate that. Okay, thank you again for coming. I, um, again, I'm Cheryl Thomas. For those who didn't hear me say that before, I am today's moderator and I'm the executive director of Global Rights for Women, an organization here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with the mission to end domestic violence and sexual violence around the world through systemic and legal change. This conversation series, Valiant Voices, is a series we created that features human rights advocates and survivors who are addressing injustice and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. The stories we feature in Valiant Voices are the stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities and around the world. We welcome your comments in the chat or in the Q&A section on Zoom. And after the conversation, we'll be sending out a link with the recording. If you need a certificate of attendance, please contact Sophia. Um, she's here and, and uh, going to be managing the chat there and putting her email there. Today, we'll be talking about both reproductive health and identifying abuse in relationships. And we recognize that there may be survivors here with us today. Parts of this conversation may be triggering and we are including resources for people here in the US and internationally in the chat for people who need safety and assistance. Now I'm delighted to present and introduce our panelists to you. Elena Atava is a senior advocacy and communications manager at White Ribbon Alliance, one of the largest advocacy networks for health and gender equity globally. Elena is a human rights attorney and advocate who's been involved in the movement 
for respectful maternity care in her home country, Bulgaria, and throughout Eastern Europe. Welcome, Elena. Prior to joining White Women Alliance, Elena was the Eastern European Legal Advocacy Coordinator for the international, international nonprofit Human Rights in Childbirth and later served on the board of the organization. Her work also focused on the prevention of other forms of violence against women, including domestic and trafficking in women. Welcome again, Elena. Thank hey, you so much for having me. We're happy to have you. Kay King is an executive is executive director of the White Ribbon Alliance in the United Kingdom and a campaign manager for Childbirth Choices Matter. Kay is a birth activist, author and doula for loss informed birth. Kay splits her work working week between White Ribbon Alliance and A4 A14 Maternity where she works as the business development manager. Kay is currently involved in campaigns to bring respectful maternity care into mainstream curriculum on relationships and sex education. The Global What Midwives Want campaign to gather the voices and needs of midwives around the world, and the Service User Voice campaign to attain a national picture of incidents of substandard care for minority groups accessing maternity care systems. Wonderful well, to be here. Thank you. Wonderful to be here with you. Huge thanks to you for coming, Kay, and taking the time. Rahel Nardos is an associate professor in the Division of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery and the inaugural director of Global Women's Health at the Center for Global Health and Social Responsibility here in Minnesota at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Nardos was born and raised in Ethiopia. After completing her medical training in OBGYN in the US, she returned to Ethiopia to serve as a staff surgeon at the Addis Ababa Hamlin Fistula Hospital. She is a board member and programming chair of Worldwide Fistula Fund, which supports obstetric fistula partners in five countries. She co-authored a book, Overcoming Violence Against Women and Girls, the International Campaign to Eradicate a Worldwide Problem. She recently received the prestigious Bush Fellowship, recognizing her leadership potential. Welcome, Rahel. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's a privilege to be here. Privilege to have you. Sarah Stace. Welcome, Sarah, has served as the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States since 2001. Under Sarah's leadership, the organization has grown from a two-state region to one of the largest Planned Parenthood affiliates in the country. During her tenure at Planned Parenthood, Sarah co-founded and continues to play a key role in two companies, Afaxis, a manufacturer of affordable contraceptives and group purchasing organization, and Bridge, healthcare partners that provides for the management and delivery of business and technical services to healthcare entities. Prior to her time with Planned Parenthood, Stace spent six years as Vice President for Public Affairs at the Twin Cities-based Alina Health System. Huge thanks to you all for taking time out of your incredibly impactful and busy lives and joining us um, here. So before we start, I wanna say welcome to you specifically, Sarah. I didn't say that, I don't think. Really happy to have you join us. So I'm going to just present a little bit of background and context for our discussion first before we get to the questions to the panelists. 
To prevent and eradicate gender-based violence, it's necessary to look at it globally and holistically, as Indigenous and Black women's organizing has taught us. Reproductive freedom is integrally related to violence against women and girls in the struggle to control our bodies, to address violations of our human right to be free from violence, and to access justice for sexual and domestic violence. For example, we know that it's rare that domestic violence survivors have not been sexually assaulted by their intimate partners. Countless sexual assault survivors have been denied access to birth control, threatened with injury or death if they become pregnant, or on the other hand, terminated a pregnancy. Sexual coercion is rampant, often involving threats and intimidation to become pregnant. These forms of abuse are used to control an intimate partner, denying them bodily autonomy and reproductive decision-making. Restrictions to reproductive health care disproportionately harm people of color, lower income, and rural communities and LGBTQ people who face obstacles in accessing affordable and safe health care that meets the, their own needs and the needs of their families. Black women are twice as likely, and Latino women are 1.6 times as likely to get late or no prenatal care at all compared to white women. Black women are more likely than white women to experience preterm birth and are more than three times as likely to die during pregnancy and childbirth. I'm just gonna offer some statistics here. And Sophia, I don't know if you can put those in the chat, but um, I, they, when we did some background research for this particular discussion, they're alarming even to those of us who work in this field daily and have for decades. Nearly half of all pregnancies around the world are unintended, totaling 121 million each year throughout the world. Almost 50% of sexual assault victims become pregnant. Approximately one in five women report having experienced forced pregnancy or pregnancy coercion, and one in seven women have had their abusers actively interfere with their birth control. Sexual and domestic violence survivors not only have significantly higher rates of unintended pregnancies, they also experience escalating and far more lethal violence during pregnancy. Homicide is a leading cause of death during pregnancy and in the postpartum period in the United States. Pregnancy and the postpartum period are times of elevated risk for homicide among females of reproductive age. So th that gives you a sense of the profound impact these issues are having on women's lives here locally in Minnesota and around the United States and globally. So I'm gonna start with you, Rahel, um, with, with a question um, about the complications involved with reproduction and gender-based violence. Gender-based violence complicates the nature of choice and healthy childbirth. In almost all countries, the prevalence of domestic violence and sexual violence is higher among women giving birth to the extent we have those statistics. Women with multiple children and those who have unwanted pregnancies, um, the giving birth at a young age, and those women with multiple children and those who have unwanted pregnancies is what I meant to say. You have seen a lot of pelvic trauma due to fistula and FGM in your practice. 
and how reproductive choice for some women is just simply unattainable. Rahel, how are reproductive health services, including prenatal care and family planning services, taking into account situations like these? Thank you so much, Cheryl, for that really, really important question. Um, and again, it's such a privilege to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, as you know, gender-based violence is uh, not only horrific human rights violation, but also a grave public health concern that affects um, the mental and physical health of girls and women, um, creating great barriers to attaining their full potential. So um, perhaps I can, I can briefly share a story from a patient I took care of in Ethiopia some 12 years ago that really um, highlights the intersection of gender inequities and gender-based violence um, and reproductive health. As a clinician, you know, I interact with patients on a daily basis and this patient's story really stuck with me. She was 18 years old and she lived in rural Ethiopia um, she was taken out of school and given an arranged marriage um, at the age of 14 to a man who was twice her age. This is actually a pretty typical story. She got pregnant at age 16. Um, she did not have any prenatal care, and there were no real options for her to consider contraception because her primary role as a wife uh, was to bear children and to provide domestic service. She attempted to have her baby at home, just like her mom and her grandmother have done in the past, but her labor got obstructed. It could be because she was still growing and her pelvic bones haven't fully developed, or it could just be the baby was too big. Uh, but after three days of labor, she delivered a stillbirth and she endured a terrible pelvic floor trauma called obstetric fistula which is a hole in her bladder through which urine would leak continuously. Now, over 90% of women with obstetric fistula have stillbirths, and they're estimated to be up to 2 million women globally with obstetric fistula, primarily in countries where resources are very limited for access to reproductive health and uh, emergency obstetric care. So when I met my patient, it was only one year after her fistula has been repaired. She actually lived with the fistula for two years prior to that. She asked her husband to bring her to our hospital, um, saying that her fistula repair has failed and that she was beginning to leak urine again. But when we finally got her in the exam room, she told us that her fistula repair is actually just fine, but her husband had prevented her from going um, to get birth control pills. Uh, in fact, what she was using was depo shots because they would last for three months. Her husband had said she needs to bear him a child or he would divorce her. And in fact, he would beat her up and uh, sometimes even lock her in the house uh, when she tried to, to go for health care. The few times that she actually managed to escape and go to the health center, they didn't have the depot shot that she was looking for. So part of the issue here is um, the quality of care and the availability of care that's available. She did not have any access to longer term contraceptive services at that time. So when she came to us, she begged us 
to tell her husband that it was medically contraindicated for her to be pregnant for another year um, because she was physically and psychologically traumatized from her first childbirth uh, and needed time to recover. Not to mention that she um, is at much higher risk for acquiring another fistula if she got pregnant or for suffering from another pregnancy related complications. So what do we do as healthcare professionals? If this woman is not able to bear a child, will, she, will her husband leave her? And if he does, how will she support herself? And at that time, we also didn't have longer term contraception op options for her that we can give her in private. And so we were failing her as well. And in fact, if you look at a lot of rural hospitals uh, in low-income countries, especially, um, they are not fully equipped to provide the full spectrum of reproductive health care, um, uh, especially long-term family planning for this woman. And they're even less equipped to provide counseling and trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. So if there are no well-established community safety nets, um, social services, and larger community awareness uh, and support for the women like my patient, intervention by a healthcare professional, even if it's greatly optimized, can only go so far and at times may do more harm, uh, particularly in cultures where women are disempowered and defined by their ability to reproduce. Having said this, what gives me personally hope and what inspires me every day are the everyday heroes that work with this, within these communities. Our global partners who care for women, like my patient, are doing some incredible work. For example, one of the projects that we're embarking on is with our partners in Uganda, uh, Terawudi Women's Community Hospital, who is looking at the prevalence of gender-based violence in obstetric fistula patients and their family planning needs. And we're hoping that insights from this work uh, will provide some information on how we can uh, create trauma-informed and culturally appropriate prenatal family planning services. They're already doing a lot of social reintegration and community engagement work, and they're really well positioned, you know, to advocate and transform care for these patients. And a similar story with our partners in Kenya. Let's End Fistula Initiative, actually a program that was Rats run by Sarah Omega, who, who herself is a former fistula survivor who recently launched a youth fistula ambassador program in collaboration with the Ministry of Education, educating youth fistula prevention about fistula prevention, including delaying marriage and pregnancy and providing resources for family planning. So I believe that empowering communities by leveraging their assets is a powerful tool and it needs to be better integrated with the work of strengthening our health systems for reproductive health. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Rahel. That's such a powerful story about the intersections of what we're talking about, this coercive um, behavior um, in that first story of this woman's husband. Uh, we so often hear in the reproductive health world about you know, healthy pregnancies. How healthy is a pregnancy when it's resulted from coercion or even sexual assault? So you know, the, these, these, um, the, 
the efforts within both these kind of areas of expertise just have to be have to be in sync. Thank you for that story. Thank you. Okay, I would like you to comment on the flip side of this abuse within healthcare systems. You have worked on so many campaigns focused on changing harmful practices in reproductive health. Can you talk about the harms and abuse within health service practices that you've encountered, including obstetric violence and LGBTQ rights in parenting cases? What should be changed, Kay, to ensure reproductive rights are available for everyone seeking care? Thank you so much, Cheryl, and thank you, Raquel. It's great to follow on from, from you and wonderful to be here. Just to reiterate and, and say again, as Cheryl did at the beginning, anyone who is here just recognizing survivor trauma and anyone who is, you know, being triggered by anything this evening, just my heart out to you. Um, it's a hard conversation. It's a really hard conversation. And I have a huge amount of gratitude for all my colleagues and everyone here tonight for the, the work that you do in this space, listening to so much trauma on repeat. Um, we have a, a wonderful MP here, a member of parliament in the UK called Belle Roberto Addy, who recently said in, in parliament, um, it's enough that we lived through it. Please stop making us retell it. And, um, and, and I believe that so much that as, as women and girls, we so often have to just to get conviction on, on change, we have to relive and, and retell our stories so often. And while storytelling is so important and elicits so much empathy, why do we have to re-traumatize ourselves by going through it again? And I think that's a really powerful way to, to start this evening um, in, in terms of my response. So we've, at White Ribbon Alliance UK, we've been involved in a, a very interesting program, a tricky program of work, but a really interesting program of work for the last 18 months called Safer Beginnings, which has been looking at that intersection of gender and harm alongside the maternity journey. Um, and the, the process for that was really bringing together partners from a lot of minoritized communities, a lot of really dynamic partners working at very grassroots levels, so not big charities, but very grassroots partners to discuss the issues of obstetric violence, domestic abuse and female genital mutilation and cutting and how those cultures are, you know, what happens within healthcare services, what happens within our, our training as healthcare professionals to support people when they're potentially coming to us as healthcare professionals for the first time accessing someone that they feel comfortable disclosing to um, and are carrying with them potentially narratives and stories of abuses and harms that are really complicated for them to navigate. Um, and I've had, I've had the real privilege of, of directing that programme of work, which comes to a close in March. And I think I also come into that space as a survivor myself. I was very severely sexually abused within a faith-based community as a young person. And what was interesting in this personal program of work that touches so deeply into a personal vein as well as a societal problem was I'm okay, like I'm, I'm fine. And also my births and my labors were very very healing processes for me and in that recognition there was something very interesting that shifted which was that's because I had self-agency that's because somewhere in my journey in my relationship with my body with myself with my healing I believed that I deserved better and I think that's the piece I would probably focus on today is that we, for a couple of decades, have been very, very focused on the development of systems and services that 
catch people when they fall or catch people when they need you know when they're needed and are there to serve the broken and fix and help and heal and actually I I have a big conviction now that our attention needs to shift once again to looking at this personalized capacity for self-agency because as soon as you create a system when we create a service that supports people who are survivors or living in trauma you create an, a new system systems break systems create new cultures systems develop strange things like systemic racism and all these complex things that then harm the people that are working within them as well as the people who are receiving care and I think that just uh, that kind of refresher that reminder that actually we have to have the two coexisting we have to have personalized grassroots initiatives that are working with small numbers of people and really looking at what the individual needs alongside the development of systems is is a really key thing so just coming back to that self-agency piece for me this is acknowledging and we're doing some really interesting research as part of this program with black and south asian women on what it means to have self-agency and that idea of going I, I i can recognize and i can see that something is wrong and that i actually i want to move beyond that i want to influence my own life in a different way and looking at all of the different component parts of that and how laws and cultures and environments cultivate certain people to be able to have high agency and certain people able to have lower agency that ability to change and enact change and at work Ribbon alliance in the uk we're just and and working with our global partners as well we're just now looking at a new campaign and shifting into looking at the notion of how we address gender-based violence in a very localized setting um by beginning to ask the question what needs to change in your local community in your setting to end gender-based violence so not what needs to happen globally what is not this big mm -hmm. acronym of gbv that we've created and is different for everyone but actually in your setting and it's a very interesting reflective question to to sit with because it's it differs so drastically from from place to place what what needs to happen in my environment for me to feel safe is hugely different to somebody in the global south and who's somebody who's not got access to healthcare services and someone who's trapped within some kind of arranged marriage or situation of force that isn't my personal situation and where, where we've arrived where we're at, at the very very kind of root of this campaign is we have a declaration and I believe very strongly in the wording of this declaration in terms of what it means to have self-agency and the, the declaration reads I know my human rights I can identify signs of harm and violence I deserve and demand better I can heal and so can the world around me and I know how to make change. And my belief as well as building up these healthcare systems that are supporting and servicing, serving people when they are broken and require fixing or need holding or need support or need intervention to, to heal. I also believe that if we can transform into a world where that declaration is real and true for as many people as possible through those grassroots initiatives, through those looking at personalized ways of caring and supporting people that actually that's where we see this radical transformation in what people can do for themselves with their own knowledge and their own sense of, of strength. Beautiful. That declaration is powerful. And, and it, it, it makes me think, Kay, um, you, we, our work at Global Rights for Women is, is round the world and so true that um, that these uh, the localized 
you know, solutions just have to um, be um, tailored, tailored so um, carefully. And yet that declaration is universal. Is that, universal. that is global, that, that women, you know, it is not the West or the North or who believes in a women's human right to agency and freedom from violence and bodily integrity and autonomy. That is a universal vision that women have. I'm sure you see it, all of you see it, all of you panelists see that. And it's, it's, the, um, it's, it's our bond, it's our common global bond. We, we suffer this and we believe in, in this agency and fundamental human right across borders. So thank, thank you, you, thank you yeah. for thank your you. story your personal story. Sarah, positive reproductive health should intersect with non-discrimination, privacy, security, and safety policies. We have seen the criminalization of reproductive health care and services, not just for people seeking abortions, for example, but for doctors and staff providing abortion care. Additionally, the doctors and staff at clinics are also at grave risk of violence from people and protesters who disregard their human rights to privacy and safety. Sarah, what is our call to action so that people can make reproductive decisions free from violence, discrimination, and coercion? You have been a leader on the front lines of this. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, thank you very, very much for having me. I have so appreciated being able to uh, share space with these important panelists. And I appreciate the way that, um, uh, Cheryl, you have framed up these questions as well, uh, because it has actually um, created an opportunity for me to reflect much more deeply on some of my own personal experiences as a provider. Not a, I'm not a doctor, but I have been leading um, a significant uh, clinic system uh, here in the United States in the upper Midwest for uh, over two decades, uh, as you noted. Um, and so the whole question of agency, I think, is particularly important. Kay, I, I appreciated your point very much um, about self-agency. Um, and there's a, certainly a differentiation between what a woman who is experiencing individual um, violence, um, sexual violence, violence of any kind and coercion, that experience versus the my experience um, of also um, being subjected to um, coercion and violence and bullying and so on and so forth for so many years, I chose this life. And so it's different. Um, and I do feel like I need to acknowledge um, that difference. Uh, it's, it's related, but it's not the same. Um, for people like me um, and for doctors uh, who go into this work. Um, but I, did, I do appreciate your question. Um, and there's certainly no, there's no doubt that post Dobbs, the Dobbs decision in the United States, that coercion at the point of service where people who are seeking health care are going to get the care that they need, especially abortion care, has increased. It, it just has. There's lots of data uh, to support that. And so while I'm going to focus for a minute on point of service, 
um, violence and coercion, intimidation, bullying, all of that. I, I also do want to stress that it is the patient who is walking in the door, um, who is experiencing it in a very different and you know very very um, traumatic way, um, and that people, uh, pregnant people who live in hostile territory in the United States, are now also um, being badly harassed by their local units of government and by their state governments, by state attorneys general who are threatening to put them in jail for crossing over a state line to get an abortion somewhere else or to pick up um, a, a mifepristone or misoprostol and taking it back to their state and ingesting it or helping someone else. Um, it's um, it's a, just a, a, a terribly, terribly difficult time now um, in our country, in those territories, those parts of our country. Um, but with respect to clinic-based violence, I think that the um, in the United States, our culture tends to sort of make an assumption that this violence is just the way it is, right. um, that we live with it all the time. We always have. It's what we do. We just go to work. We do our jobs. Um, it's kind of baked into the DNA, you know, in a way, in the culture. It's it's not even something that people get particularly exercised about when it happens. Yeah, there's a little blip in the news, but then it's over and you know everybody kind of goes on and says that's that's just the way it is. And so, you know, really when you think about it, the apathy that is expressed toward providers of care is just another side of the same coin um, uh, as the apathy and um, you know lack of interest that is sometimes often expressed toward um, individuals. Um, who are subjected to, to violence. Um, so I think, you know, all of us who do the work um, that we do um, over many, many years, um, we develop, um, uh, well, just speaking for myself, I guess, <laughs> um, develop, it, it, it is necessary to develop a, a hardening um, externally, internally, um, so that we can do the work every single day. We have to protect ourselves from the vulnerability that we might otherwise feel um, and that would perhaps make it, um, we would be too fearful um, to do our jobs. Um, and so we have to put it aside. We don't even like to talk about it because to talk about it, in fact, I don't think I've ever talked about it publicly like I'm doing today. This is the first time for me in all of these years. Because to, to even talk about it is to acknowledge a really terrifying reality. Um, people have been killed um, and harmed in many, many ways. Um, and I just, I, I really want to um, underscore how serious this is. Um, and to tell you that in my um, over two decades of going to work, um, there was not one single solitary day, not one day that I was not accosted by bullies on my way in the door, not a single solitary day. They knew my name, they knew about my family. I heard it every single solitary um, day. And during my tenure and now there have been 
hundreds and hundreds of serious incidents that have occurred um, uh, nationally in Minnesota alone. Um, um, we have had um, an SUV driven through our the front door of our clinic. Um, we have had bullets shot into our clinic, hollow point bullets in the middle of the night, more than one clinic. We've had fake anthrax attacks necessitating us to clear out um, midday, you know, mid-exam, mid-procedure, so on and so forth. There's many, many more things. My, my predecessor, in fact, was uh, beaten um, within an inch of his life in his office um, before I came before I came on the job. Our primary clinic was torched, um, burned, um, so on and so forth. These are this is just sort of the this is the water that we swim in um, every day. And um, as I say, since Dobbs, um, in fact, um, it is increasing. Um, so, <laughs> you know, my I guess you asked me what is my call to action. It's a complicated question, complicated answer. Um, and so I will just say that my first um, ask, um, my first call to action is just to ask abortion providers, what do we need? And maybe even before doing that, just see us and see our lives and what our experiences are, acknowledge them um, privately to us, but also publicly, um, ask us what we need and then help us to put changes in place, both in terms of the legal um, structures that we have, but also in our culture, such that um, acceptance of um, violence and bullying and harassment and intimidation of abortion providers is no longer, it's no longer something that we just shrug off. Um, it has a terrible effect, not just on the people who are providing the care, the people who are receiving the care, um, it also has um, a very detrimental effect on us being able to recruit others um, to provide the care as well. So it has significant um, impacts all across our all across our um, systems. And so I'll just make one final point, um, and that is um, to say that um, um, post Dobbs, <clears throat> uh, we are seeing widening disparities in terms of access to care in the country. It's terrific if you live in California. It is not terrific if you live in South Dakota or Texas or you know, many other places. Um, so in some ways, it's the best of times um, as people have come out to support um, abortion care in some safe places, and it is the worst of times in others. But what is, what is the same across the country is that violence and intimidation against providers is continuing. And I'll just give you one very short example, and that is a, um, an attack on a, a clinic in Illinois that just happened last week, in fact. Um, and Illinois is considered a very safe place, very welcoming place, um, politically, culturally. There are many um, points of service and, and clinics available, and yet... There was an attack on a clinic last yeah. week. Even so, yeah. So, um, thank you. Yeah. So, thank you. Um, yeah. Just thank you for your story, for your, um, and and for your personal um, 
appeal, honestly, that is so important for so many. I want you to know, of course, you know this, but some may not. This is this is a not only a problem in the United States, it is a global problem for women's human rights defenders everywhere. Their lives are being threatened, um, not only for those providing care like Sarah described, but even for um, working towards systemic change. I have friends in Armenia, for example, whose lives were threatened simply because they were working for to pass the first domestic violence law, prohibiting domestic violence in their country. And they were not able to continue doing that work because of the threats that they were getting from their family, uh, the threats to them and their family that they were getting. And then the lack of, of, of the community and the government to provide protection for that. So th this is a global problem. So not only for the women and men who are working to promote women's human rights, uh, not only for, and for the survivors and the victims, but for the, the those who are trying to make the world a different place. So please be aware of that. And, and no, please notice, Sarah, the comments in the chat, who the, those people that are really are sending you care and all of you support and strength and care. I think coming together like this is one way we can keep our movement going to promote women's <laughs> rights and um, act in solidarity. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So Elena, um, recent research has, has demonstrated that women and girls are particularly vulnerable to gender-based violence in situations um, of displacement following conflicts and disasters generally. And then of course, this gets into the sexual assault issue. Some of these are slow moving disasters that we know we can plan for, yet the humanitarian responses to emergencies tend to be blind to women's specific needs and vulnerabilities, including for sex, increased risk of unwanted pregnancies, sexually transmitted infections, sexual abuse and uh, harassment kidnapping, trafficking, if we see, as we've seen in Ukraine, uh, Ethiopia, you know, forced marriage. Tell us about your experience, please, Elena, with the intersections of conflicts and disasters and reproductive health and gender-based violence. And then maybe what are the next steps that will help women and girls, in your opinion, Elena? Thank you so much for the question, Cheryl, and thank you to all of the panelists for really moving personal and really important um, points that you made. Um, the White Ribbon Alliance, first, just to give people uh, perspective in case you don't know about us, the White Ribbon Alliance is um, an organization, uh, an umbrella organization of advocates and advocacy organizations from throughout the world. And we work with networks in other countries, primarily in Africa, in Asia, Latin America, and Europe. And those networks are also at national and subnational levels. So, so the reach of, of our organization is, is really throughout. Um, and our approach has always been that we start by asking women and girls what they want, what they need. And that's how we shape our advocacy based on the priorities as articulated by women and girls. One recent example I'd like to give, I think all of you saw the tremendous destruction after the flooding in Pakistan this past summer. One third of the country was underwater and still many parts are. 
Um, so we're talking about displacement at um, horrific levels. Uh, women, girls, whole families uh, with nowhere to live, still living in water, um, rampant disease. Um, as Cheryl articulated, all kinds of um, threats to women and girls' lives. And what we did as an advocacy organization, like I said, that's always been our approach, is, is to go to those communities um, in those three provinces that were particularly affected and to ask them, what do you need right now for your own reproductive health care? What is your primary concern? Because it's one thing for us as uh, advocates or as uh, implementers or as you know, you know, somebody providing services to presume what they might need, but it could be very, very different to hear it from women and girls directly. And very often, um, they challenge our presumptions, <laughs> so it's important to listen and to actually act on, on that. Um, so women were prioritizing, in many respects, the basics, as you might presume, right? I mean, there, there were uh, demands and, and needs for very basic um, services, food, nutrition, shelter, uh, water and sanitation, hygiene. Um, in the same sentence, they would also ask for access to birth control and family planning because they could not imagine being pregnant in those circumstances. And, and so the needs are very, this is as basic <laughs> as the shelter and the food and the, the nutrition. And that, that is what, what really, you know, what every actor responding to crisis needs to understand. This is really a basic need. Um, the, the minimum, so there's uh, an international group of actors who come together under the umbrella of the Interagency Working Group on Reproductive Health in Crisis. And they have developed what's called a minimum initial service package. And so this is what are the basic things that have to be done by all actors responding to an emergency right away. And so that's a great resource that articulates, you know, this is what should happen right now. Every actor coming together we are acting as one, we are speaking with one voice and, and we're providing those services. But another, another thing to consider is what happens, what we've been discussing so far, what happens in our country, in the United States, one of the biggest, wealthiest countries in the world, impacts every other country. Um, because of our size and, and, and how um, our voice, how much our voice is heard, but also because one of, we are one of the biggest providers of international aid. The US government is the biggest provider of humanitarian assistance. So we export through our foreign policy and through our international giving, we export our own values. We export yeah. what is currently happening, what we think um, you know, is happening in the country. And this impacts every other country who relies on international assistance. So in our own you know, environment, that means that we're not providing access to abortion services. This is not part of the support that we provide. So other actors need to step up and, and to support, um, support that need. And the need, like I said, is tremendous. And this is just an acute setting. So this is you know, a disaster that happens, uh, garners international attention, uh, probably not as much as it should have. Honestly, I was surprised um, how little coverage there was for, for such like I said, one third of the country was, was underwater. 
Uh, but there's so many other slow moving disasters that are never noticed. You know, when we talk about extreme heat, when we talk about drought, this is something that people just accept and, and they think, oh, that's, you know, that region has always been hot. You cannot imagine Sindh province in Pakistan reaches up to 50, 55 Celsius, which is about 120 to 125. I just want you to imagine that <laughs> this is burning hot. This is incompatible with human life. So we have also done extensive interviews with women, um, especially those in um, reproductive age or who are planning a pregnancy or who are uh, already pregnant or had just delivered um, and are maybe uh, breastfeeding. We've done extensive interviews with them to see what does it feel like? What, what does it um, mean for them to be pregnant, um, to, to even consider that in those circumstances? And it's heartbreaking to hear what they say. Um, I can only summarize it as they're slowly dying because they talk about um, inability to feed themselves or even to have strength to gather water. Uh, they talk about how tired they feel all of the time and yet they still have to cook, so more heat. They still have to gather water. They still have to take care of other children. Uh, with rolling blackouts, that means no access to electricity. That means no access to any type of cooling like a fan perhaps. Um, so it's really, it's really impactful and it does inform their, um, you know, what they think about their, their future uh, reproductive choices. They um, do not want to have any more kids, um, which is, you know, it shouldn't, they shouldn't be even put in that situation to make a decision based on those circumstances. But unfortunately, that is the impact of climate change. Those who are least responsible for um, getting the world into <laughs> this situation are those that are most impacted. Their fertility is impacted. So in, in some instances, they might not be able to, um, to get pregnant if they want to, or they might be making decisions not to get pregnant because they, um, they cannot imagine to, to be pregnant in, in those circumstances or to uh, take care of kids. They will be afraid that their kids might not survive, especially, especially the newborns are uh, particularly impacted in the heat. Um, so I want to <laughs> still, after painting this picture, I want to talk about the future and what potentially a future could look like, because I think the absence of violence is the bare minimum that we should be striving towards, right? We, we have to envision a future um, that is really a, a feminist future that um, considers, especially the ongoing crisis that we're uh, facing uh, COVID, war, um, huge displacement as a result of the climate crisis. And the only way we can envision that future, if, if it's a feminist one, if it's built uh, with, uh, with, that, uh, with these values and philosophies going forward. So I think, I think the absence of harm and abuse is, is just like the floor and we continue building from there. That's a beautiful uh, way to end your comments. Elena, thank you so much for that. And I, I think the, the women in Pakistan too, so tragic and devastating that, 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 that this um, so impacts their, their choices and their reproductive choices and their family choices, but so often they don't even have those choices. And the breakdown of infrastructure that occurs with all disasters, humanitarian and man-made. 
Um, so just another thing to keep in mind. Um, Kay, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't see your hand there. Uh, do you want to say fine? It's fine. I'm, I was just, I'm actually jumping back just for, for those of you who want to pick up more on, on what Elena was talking about. I've just shared the link in the chat box to the interactive dashboard of data from the What Women Want campaign. So all of that, that data Elena was talking about. I'm just going to jump back at the end of Sarah's um, comment. I I just felt a little moved to come in and talk about this, this culture of um, care towards healthcare professionals and just to reiterate the point that nobody working in this sector is, is seeking or looking to be heroes. You know, that's not why we're here. We we speak a lot in the in the UK about not beating maternity workers with the rod of resilience anymore. Um, because it's it's so so commonly thrown at healthcare professionals in underfunded, understaffed, under-resourced spaces, you know, that you've got to keep showing up, you've got to keep showing up. And one of the things we've really considered in the programs that we've been working on here is what happens to people who have a calling to service, have a calling to aiding and, and helping and supporting people with their healing and with their health. What happens when they are modeled a sector that doesn't or a system that doesn't cultivate that for them and the only thing we can assume is that their level of care is going to diminish when the environment that they're in isn't modeling that care to them and I think that's it's it's such an important thing for us to consider in the link I shared earlier in the chat box we um, we've created a resource that's called free from harm which explores some of you will be familiar with a thing called the power and control wheel um, which we've had adapted in there to look at obstetric violence and violence against healthcare professionals. Um, so there's an adaptation of that wheel and looking at where that intersects in that harm and violence on healthcare professionals and what that does to our expectations of them to be able to, to offer care. So just really just to link back to those two things and encourage us all to, to not continue to beat with that rod of resilience, but you know amplify and support all of those healthcare professionals doing amazing, incredible work. Oh, thank you for that. Kay, I didn't know that that uh, power and control wheel had been adapted. Uh, it, it, and that that's a wonderful resource. If you if you have the ability right now to put that in the yep, chat. It's shared, in, it's shared in the chat box. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. That power and control wheel, by the way, was created in Duluth, Minnesota, originally <laughs> by Ellen Pence, you may know about um, two hours north of here where we sit. And it's, it's such a, I, I think it's such a, um, an effective tool in understanding the the coercive oppressive um, violence uh, against women and as you say against caregivers also and you know part of it is goes back to what Elena said that wheel some people don't know this was created by listening to women survivors survivors of violence back in the you know 70 early, late 70s early 80s that's how those people that created it, a Domestic Abuse Project up in Duluth, sat and listened to hundreds of women survivors. So if that could somehow guide our work and oh my goodness, policymakers and lawmakers' work to listen to the needs uh, from the from the you know the voices of those survivors, um, what a feminist future that would create. We, we have a tendency in our, I just think about in our uh, legal systems, you know, to be the legal authorities and, you know, oh, this is what a prosecutor needs or a police officer needs. 
what we need to be doing is listening to the needs of the survivors of, of, of violence and crafting our systems around them. Um, there's my little lecture, but I would really appreciate questions. Are there questions in the chat? And pl please, panelists, jump in here. I saw uh, one question that I think I can answer this, Cheryl. So I thought I would just go Thank ahead you. and do so. I think it was from Sarah um, asking what we can do to ensure women's protection is properly funded in humanitarian crisis. And so the, the one advice that I have um, and I recently shared with, with, with other US-based audiences is when you vote, and I want to make sure everybody understands that when you vote, you think you have one vote, but you actually are voting on behalf of hundreds or, or thousands of others who can't vote in the United States, but they're still impacted by your vote. And so I want to make sure people here in the United States understand how impactful that is uh, when we engage with be it our local officials at uh, state level, um, whether it's even, even very locally, we are changing the future for women who live very far from us okay. because they, they are so impacted uh, by what we do, the tone we set for the world, and especially, like I said, our own foreign policy. Um, so just consider that is your contribution and engaging as many others to, to, to vote is what you do to engage and to contribute to uh, to the lives of those women who are most impacted. Yeah, I don't think people realize how we how American values are imported or exported around the world, and with, whether we like it or not, um, it is the reality. In and our so, name. So every little name. piece mm -hmm. of paper to the last pen says from the American people. Mm -hmm. So this is in our name. This is what's being done. Yeah. So we, we have to hold people accountable. Our speaking, own government. Thank you, Elena. Speaking of voting, Sarah, do you want to mention? Yes, the, yeah. I do. <laughs> I do. I, I just I want to strongly um, support um, Elena's point, um, and uh, to say that there is hope in um, democracy, and if we do anything, it is important for us to recognize. Um, that our democracy is currently under threat, and that the most, I think the most important thing we can do every day when we get up is think about how to protect and promote democracy, to build political movements with momentum, um, and to stick with it. Um, because we can have all of the great ideas in the world, and it won't matter if the people who are in power don't implement them. It won't matter a bit. I mean, I'm not saying that's an exaggeration. It, it matters that we do the work. It does. But to make broad system systemic change, we've got to have political power. Um, so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Those systems that are in place are, um, are the ones um, setting the stage for everything that we have described in this in this conversation. So, yeah. Just, I'm gonna jump back in. Sarah, Sarah's come back on saying, true, Elena, but I'm not in the US, thinking about more how we get donor governments to yeah. allocate funding. And I think that's, um, Sarah, again, I, I don't know where you are, but um, speaking quite broadly, I am, as someone who works a lot in fundraising, I think we continue to flood any grants 
with applications from women's organizations. And we do that through coming together in coalition. We come together, we convene, and we, we apply, we apply, we apply. And I think certainly here in the UK, the number of uh, women's organizations, women's run organizations demanding that money through a flooding of applications um, has led to a number of women's only funds uh, coming coming forward. And I think it's, you know, it's so hard when it's about obtaining funding, because obviously that's resource to people who are working either voluntarily or at a grassroots level. But the more that that voice is strong in those applications, larger, more powerful, potentially male run organizations will have the capacity to be funding the, you know, applying to all of these grants to these funds and systems and corporations will have the capacity. And we have to also put our energy and our attention to flooding the inboxes of those grants and those major donors with asks and requests from women. So in the UK, I use the women's health strategy that we've recently had developed and put out there as leverage in that sense and, and saying, you know, if you've, if you've put this women's health strategy and policy in place, you have to fund it. And that becomes our advocacy ask and our advocacy campaign back to the government. But it's, it's about it's about continuous presence, which again, without, you know, you know, rod of resilience and more, 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 um, I do believe that it has to be about us shouting loudly into the spaces where money is available. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can talk all we want without the money. Uh, yeah. Um, it's empty. Rahel, would, do you have, there's a question in the Q&A and I'd love it if maybe we could, uh, if, you, if you had something you wanted to say in response to that or something else, we can close with your comment or is that? Sure. Um, I'm trying to find a question. Do, do you see it? Do you want to read it? Yeah, let me do that. Uh, well, uh, while you're doing that, I was thinking, you know, throughout this discussion, I'm thinking also kind of the long, long view a strategy and I, I just, you know, I can't uh, emphasize enough the importance of girl education yeah. and having more women leaders in all of these places that are making decisions, right? So, you know, when I when it comes down to it, if we're going to shift how the world operates, those are two really critical things, I would say. Oh, so important. Huge thanks to you for mentioning that. Can't, you know, essential pieces of this puzzle we're talking about. Our participant from India, uh, Meghna, uh, thank you so much for all the work you do. Question for Dr. Nardos. There's a program in India called ASHA, Accredited Social Health Activists. They're usually women from a given community who are trained to provide local health planning, nutritional and basic sanitation education and act as a liaison to increase utilization of existing health services. Is there something in Ethiopia and other places where you have worked? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Ethiopia, you know, it's sadly the last couple of years we have been in, inflicted by this terrible conflict, which has really devastated the healthcare system. But prior to that, Ethiopia had made so much progress in maternal health and reproductive health because of their primary, their infrastructure in rural communities where they have uh, built this uh, health extension workers. They're, these are mostly women after high school who get hired to be to do the kind of work that our our uh, uh, person who asked the question uh, is talking about, who literally goes home to home providing counseling uh, and getting people to come into the health centers when they're pregnant and for prenatal care. So 
it was a very well organized exemplary program. Uh, it has been terribly uh, impacted by the conflict, and I think conflicts have a way of uh, doing that, don't they? You know, the, such huge strides were made, uh, and then within a, two years of conflict, some of our maternal mortality rates have gone back to uh, 20 years back, you know. Uh, so I think um, uh, the infrastructure is there, the, commu the community uh, organizations are there, the will is there, the resilience is there, but we also need safety um, and peace in order to make progress. Beautiful way to end this, Rahel, thank you very much. Again, huge thanks to all of these panelists for your incredible commitment, your passion, your work, your just persistence. And uh, we're, we're grateful uh, for those of you online. There's lots of links in the chat. You'll see, receive an email in the next few days with resources as well as a link to the recording. And once again, huge thanks to everyone for being here in solidarity with all of us in this movement and an honor to share this space with you. Take care and have wonderful evening, wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Valiant Voices. We hope you were able to take away something meaningful from our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our organization, Global Rights for Women, and how you can be part of the movement to end violence against women and girls, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org. And thank you. <laughs>